Welcome to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast. My name's Bethany and I'm the producer. This episode sounds a little bit different. We are recording from Central Asia. So at the moment we are standing at this beautiful mountain lake and we're looking out at these snow-capped mountains um, and the water is just this beautiful turquoise blue. And it's just incredible to think in the last couple of days as we've been traveling We've had the privilege of meeting with persecuted brothers and sisters. We've met in secret house churches. We've seen projects where they've been distributing Bibles and printed Christian materials. So in this episode, we wanted to share with you a little bit about our journey, about the people that we met, um, and we hope they encourage you as much as they've encouraged us. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Open Doors Live podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast. My name is Joss and I am one of your hosts and you may have noticed we're doing something a little different today. Mike and our producer Beth recently traveled to Central Asia where they were able to capture this content for this episode. Whilst I can't tell you where they went, I can tell you it's an incredibly difficult place to be a Christian. In this country, you could be locked away for carrying Bibles or sharing the gospel with anyone under the age of 16. Most of the pastors in this country come from prison. They became believers behind bars and have since started house churches in their local areas. Any religious activity not organized by the state is totally illegal. But let's jump into this episode from the field and thanks for listening to the Open Doors Live podcast. Testing, one, two, three. All right. <clears throat> Good? Yeah, I'm happy with that. Well, here we are sitting in Central Asia. I'm sitting opposite Beth, the producer of our podcast. And we thought for this episode, we'd give you a bit of insight into life in country. So Central Asia, it's a part of the world that I love dearly, but it's a part of the world that is extremely difficult for Christianity. It combines both the pressure of communism with the increasing and ever-present effects of radical Islam. To give you an idea of where we're sitting right now, we're in the courtyard of our hotel. It's noisy, it's loud as you can hear, and we need to be really mindful about what we're talking about. And so in this interview, you won't hear us use our company's name. You won't hear us use the names or specific names of believers or projects. And that's because even over the last three days alone, we have been relentlessly followed by the KGB. We've been boxed in as we drove in our cars, trying to avoid them at every turn. We've been trying to lose them as we go to look and meet with believers. And even now, as I sit in the courtyard of this hotel, about 15 feet to my right is an entrance to a mosque, and about 25 feet to my left is another entrance to a mosque. There are people here, guards, random tourist guests, I guess, but people who could be ambiguously secret police, KGB or anything. So we are really mindful of what we're saying, but we wanted you to feel the pressure of what it's like to be in a country where Christianity is heavily suppressed. And so today we're going to talk a lot about that, but before we get to any of that, Beth, welcome to Central Asia, a part of the world that I love, and it's your first time here. Mm. Well, tell us, give us some first impressions. Yeah, um, I guess I didn't quite know what to expect when I was coming here. It's a part of the world that I've never been to, but Mike, I think you put it so perfectly the other day when you said it perfectly marries Middle Eastern culture with Asian culture, and at the same time you've got this 
post-communist society with still elements of extremist Islam. So it's an incredibly interesting place to be. It's unlike any place that I've ever been before. But I think the thing that struck me when I first arrived was the people. Um, you always say that the people here are just the most beautiful people in the world, and I couldn't agree more. Everyone we met, especially in the church, has just welcomed us with open arms as if we're family. And I think we've got this overwhelming sense of we truly are part of one family and we're part of the global body of Christ. It's an, it's an incredibly special place to be. And I think every single person we've met has made us feel welcome, but at the same time has really made me realise how difficult it is to be a follower of Jesus in this part of the world. One of the best ways, I think, to describe this church, and correct me if I'm wrong, Beth, but I would say that this is a church directly from the Book of Acts. Mm. People say, well, what does that mean, Mike? Well, you know what? Believers in this country, the first conversions in this country were in the 1990s. Mm. That's not too long ago. It's a mm. first-generation church of every single person we meet either talk about dreams and visions of Jesus. They talk about miracles, uh, people being healed from stage 4 liver cancer, people being healed from TB, people who are barren being able to have children. I mean, it is a church where miracles are happening. God is moving. Fellowship is incredible. I mean, the church is meeting four or five nights a week, six nights a week. They are worshipping. They are having communion. It is directly out of the book of Acts. And I guess, for me, that's probably the best way to describe the church in Central Asia. Mm. Um, sorry, I just got really distracted because that guy was taking photos of us. Which guy? The good guy facing us with his phone out. Um, okay. Obviously, this information is quite sensitive, so excuse me if my voice is a little bit quiet. We're just so aware of where we are at the moment and the people who are around us. Thinking of the Book of Acts church notion, I actually had a moment when we were sitting in the airport where I was looking around and there was all these beautiful children. I started to think, well, what does faith look like for the next generation? Is there hope um, with all the pressure that's on them at the moment? Will they actually last and will the church grow or will it be stamped out? Being in this country, I've really had a whole new um, understanding of the significance of children's ministry because in this country, it's illegal to bring children into the church and share the gospel with them. The first secret church that we went to, we're sitting in this room and I'm looking around, there's all these kids under the age of 16. And I think nothing of it because I'm so used to my church back home where people bring their children. We've got these massive children's ministries and it's just a normal part of church life. And as I look around at all these kids, I'm smiling at them. They've got their Bibles in front of them and they they know the words to the songs and they're so passionate about Jesus. And then this information gets passed down the line. I think it went from you, Mike, to the rest of our team and it eventually gets to me and you guys reminded me that um, if the secret police came into the church at this moment and saw all these children learning the word of God and not just learning it lightly, like they were memorizing chunks of scripture, if any of that was uncovered, the consequences for that would be huge. And it made me realize that even though there is so much oppression, there is still hope for the next generation, the next generation to come and the generation after that will only go from strength to strength. And I think that was incredibly encouraging. You know, one of the things that, or the real structure around that restriction on faith is that any child under the age of 16, you cannot share the gospel with. Mm. So for our listeners, can you imagine how 
restrictive that is on the future of faith. Mm. The cost for parents to think, if I let my child go to Sunday school, or if this church continues to teach scripture, not only could we end up in prison, but our kids could be in trouble as well. Mm. It is a hugely effective way of suppressing the next generation of believers. But one of the stories that I really love and really stuck with me on this trip was one of my dearest friends in the time of the ministry, a man that would have had the most impact on my 10 years with the persecuted church. He was and has been a senior pastor of the church that you were talking about that we were sitting in, the underground church. And then he talked to us about how recently he stepped out of leadership and he's now running the kids' church. And we sat there and I remember we, we sort of pondered on it, Beth, and we thought, mm. well, what, what's he doing? How's that work? Is that mm. because he's trying to be a humble leader and, and make way for the next generation? Well, that, you know, that's part of it. But the truth of it is, what he was saying was, if the police come and someone has to go to prison, it's going to be me. Mm. So what he did was stepped out of the role of senior pastor. I mean, for our listeners, think about this in your church context. Your senior pastors step out of their roles to take on the role of a children's pastor. It's unheard of. It doesn't happen in our part of the world. And for me, Beth, that was just a powerful and profound moment and a reality of the cost of faith in this country. Mm. Let me just paint a little picture of what runs alongside that. I mean, we visited a church of a pastor who's serving a three-year prison sentence. The reason he's serving a three-year prison sentence is because he was caught with Christian songs on his computer and charged with extremism. The same charge as terrorism. Off the back of that, not just Christian songs, Christian books, printing, books on prayer, kids' ministry resources, each and every one of them have the same charge of extremism as though you were a terrorist. Why do people still go to church? I mean, why do they willingly let their kids go to church? It undoes me. Another brilliant and dear brother in the ministry is a former wrestler, a criminal who spent 17 years in jail. His story is mind-blowing in and of itself, and I'm sure we will tell it at a later stage. But he says, you see, the Bible talks about worshipping in spirit and in truth. And he looks up at us and he says, what does it mean to worship in truth? I've never in my life thought of that. What does it mean to worship in truth? And this probably goes on and he says, well, to worship in truth means to worship with a true biblical knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is. And he says, because if you don't have a true understanding of who Jesus is from the scriptures, well, you're simply worshiping an imagination version of Jesus. And in that moment, my whole world fell apart because you know what I realized? My Bible reading, it's not necessarily strong. I don't do it regularly. I wish I did, but I don't. And to be honest, I think a lot of our listeners probably are the same. And the reality is in the absence of regular Bible reading, regular encounters with God, again, these brothers say to us, reading their Bible is their opportunity to walk hand in hand with God himself through the Garden of Eden. They get to meet with him face to face. It's why they go to the scriptures. When it becomes a simple issue of imagination, well, the breadth of who Jesus is varies dramatically. The church begins to fall apart. It begins to fight amongst itself because it says, hey, this is what I think Jesus is. No, this is what I think Jesus is. And for me, that is just profound because it's right. I live with that every single day of the week. I have an imagination-based version of Jesus because of the lack of time I spend in scriptures. So what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? It means to have a good, true, accurate understanding of who Jesus is. When I was in Iraq, I realized that believers there had such a reverence for the cross. But here in Central Asia, I've realized they have 
so much reverence for the word of God. And um, even in that same conversation, one of the believers said to us, if you were just reading the Bible for a sermon or to get some kind of wisdom or understanding and you're not reading it to find Jesus, then you're reading it in vain. And I think that blew my mind because how often do I go to the Bible and and read this beautiful book only when I'm preparing a message or only when I'm running a devotion or a Bible study? Like how often do I actually pour through the scriptures so I can be more intimate with Jesus. And that's exactly what the believers in this country are doing. The Bible is the consistent character of God throughout millennia. It is Jesus on the pages coming to life in front of us. And you're right, Beth. I sit there and I go, I'll read it when I need something or I'll read it when I'm preparing a talk. It's just mind-blowing to see the difference that a first-generation Book of Acts kind of church has and its focus on the Scriptures compared to my focus on the Scriptures. Mm. And in so many ways, it's what I love about the persecuted church because every single time you meet it, you leave changed. So we're standing here in rural Central Asia, right next to one of probably my favourite projects the company does. It's a bee farm. Um, it might seem strange to think of a bee farm as an effective project with the persecuted church, but the thing about this is that we come to the local church and we say, how can we breathe life into what you're doing? How can we help in every area that you see the Lord moving? And in Central Asia, in this part of the world, it looks so vastly different. We have projects that are drug rehabilitation clinics. I mean, 80% of the pastors in this region are from prison. 80% of pastors are from prison. And the people we've met this week, Beth, are people who have spent anywhere from, I think the minimum is maybe eight, up to 22 years in prison. This part of the world is crazy. And what's astounding is seeing the passion and the fervor that people who have spent, you know, a good part of my life so far on earth in prison, now serving God with a huge passion. More than that, it's a first-generation church. Some of the first conversions were in the 90s. Right? It's now 2019. These men who have come out of prison, they've only been Christians for 10, 12 years, but their ministry is incredible. And so as an organization, we are working with drug rehabilitation clinics, uh, houses for uh, former prostitutes and their children. And now we find ourselves in this moment, Beth, standing opposite a bee farm of all things. But what I love about the bee farm is that as an organization, I think it's probably one of the most exciting projects we do in this part of the world. And it's because it actually helps people across all areas of our ministry. The men that run it are training up the kids from the former prostitutes to find jobs and self-sustainability. Each one of them, uh, when it comes to summer, will inherit a bee family of their own. More than that, once the bees have produced their honey, the honey is given to the next level up. People who are, again, former drug addicts, criminals, prostitutes, and 
and they go and sell them as a way of um, developing an income for their family. And then when that's done, it goes to the next level up. And what happens is pastors come and they will accompany these people as they sell the honey and they will evangelize. Here we find ourselves with a multi-generational project where kids are learning to farm bees. Uh, parents are generating income. Pastors are evangelizing. All in this community? It's mind-blowing. It's what I love about the company. It's one of the most exciting things and I'm so pleased that we are part of. I think one of the things that has stood out to me most on this trip is probably just seeing the transformative power of Jesus. Last night, actually, we were sitting in a room full of former prostitutes, women who'd been working on the street, and our one of our local partners, he'd found these women um, at a young age. Many of them were so thin, he had to carry them to this safe house. And it was incredible to look around the room and see these women who are now learning about their value in Jesus and learning that they have purpose and that they can do other forms of work to earn a living for their children because many of them had children while they're working in the industry. And it was amazing because when I walked into the room, I was greeted by this woman who was just so full of joy. She gave me the biggest hug and it was the most incredible hug. And then we got to hear her story and it turns out this woman was from Russia and she'd lost her entire family in a car accident and so she came to um, this part of Central Asia to run away and to forget and so every day she began to drink and she became an alcoholic and in one of her um, episodes when she was intoxicated, she killed somebody and she ended up with a prison sentence. And I couldn't believe it because I'd just been hugged by a murderer, but it felt like being hugged by a saint. She was sharing with us how before she met Jesus in the prison, she actually wanted to take her own life and she attempted to take her own life three to six times. But every time something would happen, there'd be an extra guard on duty or she wouldn't be able to get access to the things that she needed to commit suicide at the time. And, and now she looks back, she can see that God was protecting her from that. She said, I didn't want to live before, but now I want to live a thousand times more. I want to live for him. I think that perfectly captures the way God is moving in this part of the world. He is restoring broken lives, bringing people into relationship with him. And then he's equipping them and empowering them through our local partners, through the local church, in order for them to go out and be the light of the gospel in their communities. We're back in the studio and I'm sitting down with Beth and Mike after their time in Central Asia. Thanks, Chelsea. It's good to be back. It was only 12 months ago, actually, that we were in that country together. Yeah. Probably one of the most memorable trips of my time with Open Doors. Can you remember, Joss, going to a safe house for women, sitting with their children, playing with toys? For me, I think looking back on our trip, that was probably one of the more impactful moments of that trip. Yeah, I remember that day so well. And one of the most beautiful things that I often think back to is, I think I asked a question, why do you follow Jesus? In the context that they follow him, it's so difficult. Why do you keep following Jesus? And I remember seeing this lady sitting on the arm of a chair her face just completely lighting up and she couldn't contain her joy and her love for Jesus. She just kept saying something like, because I love him, he is light. Because I love him, he is light. She could not stop the joy from just spreading across her 
her face. You know, I remember her so vividly. And having sat down with you now for the first time getting back from this trip, I can tell you we saw her again this trip. Oh, wow. 12 months on, she is doing a brilliant job. Mm. She is helping out in this safe house, really working hard with the kids. And more than that, on the last night of our time in Central Asia, we went to a service held in an old abandoned church. Almost every single person in this church was under the age of 16. I had never felt more nervous on any one of the trips I've taken in the last 10 years with this ministry. Most of the children in the service, their parents were either alcoholics or prostitutes. And I remember asking one of our team there, and he told me that many of the children tonight will return to homes where their mothers are working as prostitutes. They will sleep in the same room. I mean, most of these people, they come from one-bedroom apartments. It's a heartbreaking thought. I remember as the conversation went on, a partner said to me, the children in this area, they're among some of the most desperate in the country. When he brings them food, he must watch them eat it because he knows if he doesn't watch them consume it there and they take it home, they won't be the ones who eat it. The parents will probably take the food. These are kids who are anywhere between the ages of 5 and 15. Can you begin to imagine, Jossie, or what the world must seem like through their eyes? Yeah. The service began with worship, but it was loud. It was courageous. It was passionate. I was sitting in the front row thinking to myself, you must be able to hear this three or four blocks away. Wow. Surely this is dangerous. But it didn't seem to phase them. That's crazy. Mm. One of our team, Steve, had the opportunity to get up and speak. And he spoke to the youth about the men who drop their nets and follow Jesus. We actually see that story in Matthew 4, verse 18. And the amazing thing, which I actually didn't realize before, was that in Jesus's time, if you were a young Jewish boy, the best thing that you could possibly do with your life was to become a rabbi's apprentice. Not to get a trade, not to do necessarily anything else, but to be able to study with a rabbi and a good rabbi at that. But in order to do that, you had to be able to memorize, first of all, Genesis all the way through to Deuteronomy by the age of 10. Wow. And then you could continue on to the next stage. And by the age of 14, you should have memorized the rest of the Old Testament. And then the best of the best would be offered the opportunity to study with a rabbi. So when Jesus came to Simon, Peter and Andrew, as they were casting their nets and fishing, I think it's safe to assume that they actually never made the cut to be a rabbi's apprentice. And when Steve got to share this message with the young people at this illegal church, you could just see how powerful it was for them because it was all about Jesus using the unqualified and making them qualified. And it's not about how good you are, but it's about, like you were saying before, Mike, how God has a plan for each one of our lives. You know, Beth, I really think that that theme of God's plan for your life is what stood out on this trip. It reminds me for the listeners of our time in Iraq, where I think I asked you the question, Why were you born where you were born? Surely it can't be to be a lukewarm Christian. I didn't mean that in an insulting way, but I meant it in a way to say, hey, there's got to be a purpose behind uh, the why. Why were we born in Australia? Why were we born in this moment in history? Why were we born to know and be in relationship with Jesus? And more than that, what can we do to help the world better follow Jesus. It's what I love about Open Doors as a ministry for more than 60 years. We've been helping people follow Jesus all over the world, no matter the cost. And looking forward over the next 60, I don't believe that mandate will change whatsoever. One of the most powerful moments for me in this church was meeting a little girl called Treasure. Her mother is a working prostitute and her home life sounded terrible. Somewhere between the ages of five and nine, she reminded me so much of Brooke and Olivia, my daughters. And at the end of the service, she really took a warming to me, played guitar, she sat on my lap, she showed me this dog that was running around the church. We raced outside and it was just beautiful. I mean, it was raining and it felt like we were, we were almost just dancing in the rain together. 
we took a group photo and I threw her up on my shoulders and the, the, the joy and the look on her face was just something I'll never forget because again, for me in that moment, I was like, oh, has anyone ever done this for the girl? But my heart broke for her. Treasure is a passionate follower of Jesus, part living in a situation where at any minute she could be exploited in the most horrific of ways. Her mother's a prostitute, sleeps with men for a living, under the same roof, and of an evening, treasure goes to sleep. It is only a matter of time before the question is asked, and that breaks my heart. As we left the church, one of our workers helped clarify my thoughts, and he says, Mike, when the church stops saving lives, it starts to decay. It begins to fall apart. He said the only hope the church has is to save just one more. For me, treasure, she is the one. And seeing how we help as a ministry, you know, that's what drives me. Everything we do on the ground, all the funds that you donate as listeners, as supporters of our work, they're for the one. Just people like treasure. It's why I believe there is hope for the future of the church in Central Asia. Why I believe the next generation will not be stamped out, but will go on. It's because the Bible, it's alive and it's written on their hearts. And because the body of Christ, it's coming together to support one another as we follow Jesus, no matter the cost, together. I think one of the most beautiful things about the church in Central Asia is that it faces so many difficulties, struggles, trials and problems and yet it is truly one of the most joyous, uplifting, hopeful places and Christianity is truly booming and Jesus is alive. If you've been challenged by the stories today, uh, we actually have some exciting news for you. This August, we're bringing the persecuted church to you. Our friends from Central Asia, the people that have told us these stories that you've heard today, um, the people that we've met over there, they are coming to join us for Open Doors Live. That's an event that's taking place in Sydney, Melbourne, Toowoomba and Brisbane. And we would really love for you to come and worship with us, pray with us and learn from the persecuted church. So you can find out more about those events at opendoors.org.au. And Joss, I'll tell you what, of my 10 years with the ministry, there has been one man that has changed my faith. His name is Ozod, and he's coming. That is a speaker for Open Doors Live, and I can't wait to see you there. Thanks so much, as always, for listening to the Open Doors Live podcast. Please rate, review, and share this podcast, and we'll catch you next month. Thanks for listening to Open Doors Live with your hosts, Mike Gore and James Kazina. Because of your support, we're able to bring the persecuted church to life. For more information, head over to opendoors.org.au.